I'm going to start tonight with the premise that we all think the world is a mess. I'm not saying that we all think the world is a mess for the same reasons, (laughs) but generally what unites everyone across the broad spectrums of left and right, conservative and progressive, religious and secular, we all agree the world is a mess. We actually have so much in common when you think about it. There's the fact of COVID and the various attempts to respond to the pandemic. There's the shock of Russian aggression against Ukraine, a looming climate catastrophe, large-scale natural disasters. There's fires, floods, earthquakes, cyclones. There's political unrest and scandal in the church. There's a crisis of mental health, particularly amongst young people. The breakdown of families and communities, shortages of housing, rising interest rates, growing costs of living. The headlines testify every day to a world in turmoil. It seems to many as if the world is coming apart at the seams. It's the end of the world as we know it and no one feels particularly fine. And yet the call to followers of Jesus remains exactly the same. God says, gather together in worship. He says, go and proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. He calls us to be people of steadfast faith, of radical hope, of Christ-like love, and none of that has changed. And so how do we find our bearings in a world that is breaking apart? How can we not only cope in the mess of the world, but keep going, faithfully following Jesus and serving his kingdom? Well, as usual, we need to listen to Jesus, and in particular to the, let's be honest, downright confusing teaching of Matthew 24. Throughout Matthew's gospel, Jesus has taught from the mountain as a new Moses. He delivered the new commands of the kingdom in the Sermon on the Mount. And in his parables, he taught as a new Solomon. He spoke the true and better wisdom of the kingdom. And now Jesus speaks as a new prophet. In the previous chapter, he was like Jeremiah, pronouncing judgment on the religious leaders and the temple. And now here in this chapter, he's like Ezekiel, depicting scenes of strange apocalyptic imagery. But I think we are all the better for its strangeness. Because Jesus isn't giving us empty platitudes here in this chapter. He's giving us a cosmic picture within which to understand the chaos of our everyday lives. Now, given how complicated this whole chapter is, we're going to spend a little bit more time today trying to clear some interpretive ground, and I hope that that will clear the way for us to kind of be really challenged and really encouraged from God's Word for us today. Because the longer I've camped out in this passage through the week, the more I'm convinced that it's this teaching of Jesus that is exactly what we need to live for Him in a world that's falling apart. So, deep breath. You ready? Let's go. (laughs) So my basic contention about this chapter is that Jesus is primarily painting a picture that points forward to the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in the first century AD. Now, I think it's possible to read this passage as if it's talking about the return of Jesus, his second coming at the end of history. But this is the basic Bible reading rule which I'm applying. Start with what is clear and then go from there. So, there are three points of clarity, I think, which emerge from all the confusion in Matthew 24. Firstly, there's the context. 
For at the end of Matthew 23, Jesus lamented over the city of Jerusalem. So just cast your eyes up your page, verse 37 of chapter 23. Jesus said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. Jesus has come. He's offered the peace of his kingdom to the house of the temple. He's come several times, but that peace has not been received. And so he shakes the dust off his feet against that house. He heads to the Mount of Olives and he will not set his foot in the temple again. This is the context for Matthew 24. Jesus' judgment against Jerusalem and the promise of the temple's desolation. And then the temple remains the focus at the beginning of chapter 24. That's our second point of clarity. Because the disciples point back down to the temple and all of its buildings. And there's kind of a question behind their pointing, I think. They're kind of asking Jesus, what's going to happen to all of this? Surely there is hope and a future for this grand and impressive structure at the centre of the life of Israel. Jesus' response is devastating. Verse 2. Do you see all these things, he asked? Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. And that kicks off the whole conversation. The disciples ask questions prompted by this promise. When and how will the destruction of the temple come to pass? And then number three, at the climax of Jesus' teaching, right at the centre of the passage, after he has laid out the signs of his coming at the end of the age, Jesus makes another emphatic statement. He says, truly I tell you, in verse 34, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. The most straightforward way to understand that statement of Jesus is that he's talking about dramatic events that will take place within the life of the disciples who are standing there right with him. What he is talking about, they will see with their own eyes and they will know that when Jesus speaks, it happens, that his words are sure and true. In fact, that sense of an imminent catastrophe has been present from the beginning of Matthew's gospel. John the Baptist said to the Pharisees, the axe is already at the root of the trees. Jesus said that his kingdom was at hand, very near, right around the corner. Jesus speaks again and again and again to this generation. And the parables of Jesus picture some impending disaster. Jesus says a storm is coming and those who do not listen to him who do not turn to him in repentance and faith, their house will fall with a sudden crash. Something is happening soon. Something is happening quickly. Something is happening and it's just over the horizon. And it seems that's clear in Matthew 24. But these points of clarity open up even further when we see the way that Jesus draws upon Old Testament prophecy. Now, we could go deep down this rabbit hole. There are so many things that Jesus is alluding to here. He's drawing on imagery from Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Zechariah. There is a lot of prophetic language. But in particular, Jesus refers to the prophet Daniel. So listen again from verse 15. He says, so when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, 
spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, just quietly between you and me, let the reader understand is one of the most unhelpful and hilarious interjections in all of Scripture. Thanks, Matthew, that's helpful, mate, really clears up everything. Well, when we do open to Daniel chapter 9 and the prophecy that he's referring to, it does help at least a little bit. For in exile, as God's people were living in Babylon, Daniel was hoping that one day they would return to the land, that they'd be rescued from their enemies. But God gives Daniel a vision to expand his horizons, that Daniel would see God's purposes on a much grander historical scale. So here's the prophecy that Jesus is talking about and just see if you can trace through these things. God told Daniel about an anointed one who would be put to death and have nothing, about a Gentile ruler who would come to destroy the city and the sanctuary. God spoke of a new covenant and the end of sacrifice and offering and he decreed a definitive ending and desolation to be poured out on the temple. And what does Jesus say in the Gospels? Jesus says that he will suffer and die and be put to death by the religious leaders. He is the anointed one, the Messiah, who will die with nothing. But in his death, he makes a new covenant in his blood for the forgiveness of sins. He puts an end to offering and sacrifice as he gives himself as the one offering and sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. And it's the rejection of Jesus and the fierce persecution of his disciples. That is the abomination that brings about the desolation. So as Jesus said to the Pharisees in the previous chapter, I'm sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth. Truly, I tell you, all this will come on this generation. Jesus is saying that the fulfillment of all Old Testament expectation, what Daniel was talking about is coming to pass in him. The old covenant age is coming to a definitive end and the new covenant age of the kingdom of heaven is here. Now, at this stage, you could be thinking, sure, Pat, that all sounds very interesting, but doesn't this passage speak about something so much bigger, something so much grander, something much more cosmic than anything that could have happened in human history? I mean, what about that bit about the sun going dark and the moon going out and the stars falling from the sky and the heavenly bodies being shaken? Surely this is the collapse of the, you know, space-time universe, Isn't this Jesus coming back at the end of history? It's a good question. Thanks for asking. Well, the last thing we need to understand is that Jesus is borrowing standard prophetic imagery when he talks in this way. You can see he's actually quoting from the prophet Isaiah. And this is standard prophetic language that talks about the collapse of a world order in terms of the collapse of the physical universe. So this goes back to Genesis chapter 1 in the creation of the world. God made the sun and moon and stars and they're described not only as lights but as rulers in the sky. They govern the day and the night. And so the prophets speak of kings on earth as the sun and the moon and the stars. 
And we're actually far more familiar with this than we realize. Just think of how many national flags are covered in stars. How many flags are emblazoned with a sun or a moon? Even today, these are metaphors of power and rule. And so when stars fall, that means rulers are falling. When the moon goes out, that means a kingdom is being eclipsed. And the sun and the moon and stars are also clocks. Remember, they keep the times and the seasons. And so when they stop operating, it means that somebody's clock has stopped. Their time is up. Their end has come. Isaiah prophesied the end of the empire of Babylon in these terms. Ezekiel used this language in lament over Egypt. And now Jesus takes it up to speak of his judgment against Jerusalem. Here's the shocking thing. The religious leaders of Israel had become like Babylon. They had rejected Jesus, the son of the living God, and gone after abominable idols. They had become like Egypt. They were little pharaohs, enslaving the people and oppressing the saints. And so Jesus promises the end of that world. And it is cosmic. The old system centred on the temple will be eclipsed by the new kingdom centred around Jesus. And as Jesus comes in judgment, it will be clear for everyone to see the old has passed away and the new has come. So let's bring this down to earth. Imagine that you're a Christian in the first century, say around the year 60 AD. You've heard the gospel, you've put your faith in Jesus. You're a Christian And at this stage, there are probably less than 10,000 Christians in the whole world. You're now a part of a tiny minority living in the shadow of the Roman Empire. And life is hard. If you were a Gentile Christian, your family and friends would call you a fool. To reject the traditional gods for a guy who was crucified, that's ridiculous. It would be worse for you if you were a Jewish Christian. Your friends and family would call you a blasphemer. To go after this man, Jesus, is not only foolish, it would be dangerous. And so you live your whole life on the margins of society. You're harassed and persecuted. You know that Christian leaders have been imprisoned and beaten. Some have even been killed. And there are people in your little church that have had to flee their homes because of their faith in Christ. And with all of that pressure on the church, it's just being pulled in all of these different directions. And now there are these false teachers who are rising up, teaching something that just seems really different to the simple message of the gospel you first heard and believed. They have all these elaborate theories that have very little to do with Jesus. Some teachers water down the message to make it more acceptable to Jewish and Greek ears. Many of your fellow believers have turned away from the high demands of discipleship. Their first love has cooled into indifference. And as you see all of this happening around you, this chaos and turmoil in the world, you can't help but ask, Jesus promised a glorious kingdom and is this it? Does Jesus not see all the suffering and chaos in the world? Does Jesus not care about the plight of his church? Even worse, is Jesus there? Have I believed a lie? But then you remember these words of Jesus. He said that all of the chaos is not the end, that the suffering is not the end, that the turmoil is not the end. You remember, he said, all these are the beginning of birth pains. 
They're not signs of the end, but of a new beginning. Something new is being birthed into the world. And so you keep going. You don't get sucked in by the false teachers. You don't give in to the pressure to conform. You don't slide into idleness and indifference. And you keep proclaiming the gospel of Jesus to the people around you. And you hear that the gospel is going to the ends of your world. All these letters are being passed around the churches and more and more people are coming to faith in Christ. And you remember Jesus said that that too was a sign. And you keep listening to the words of Jesus and you keep serving him and you keep loving people with the radical love of the kingdom of heaven and you bear up under all that pressure and you don't know that a day is coming when Jesus will come through on his words. And then... It all happens just as he said. Can you imagine? The might of Rome sweeps in, the temple is torn down, Jerusalem falls, and after all of those years of hard and faithful service, you know that none of your suffering has escaped the sight of God. That God cares about every drop of righteous blood that has been spilled in the early church. That Jesus really is the new temple that he is now the meeting place between God and humanity. You know that his sacrifice really is sufficient for your sins, that his kingdom has begun because Jesus the King really does live and he really does reign and he really does rule from his heavenly throne. See, what fuel for faithfully following Jesus that must have been? And is it any wonder that after that time the church exploded? And thousands became tens of thousands, became hundreds of thousands, has become millions and billions as people here even now have come to hear the gospel and put their trust in Jesus. Now, I've said that Jesus is talking about a specific time and place, a specific set of historical events, but that doesn't mean his prophecy is irrelevant to us. Because this whole sequence, this pattern happens again and again throughout history This pattern of Jerusalem is always how God ends one world and begins another. And it is a pattern of what will happen at the end of all time when Jesus returns once and for all. For the pattern of Jerusalem is the pattern of Jesus. This is how God always works in the world. Because what Jesus predicts for his disciples here in this chapter is precisely what he will experience in the days ahead. Jesus was delivered up for tribulation. He was killed. He was hated by all. Liars brought false accusations. He was abandoned by his closest companions in the greatest crisis of his life. Love grew cold amongst his disciples. Some did not even endure to the end. But for Jesus, these events were not signs of defeat. They didn't represent the frustration of his work. They were the beginning of birth pains. Those birth pains that came to a climax on the cross and that birthed the whole kingdom of God. The kingdom of Jesus does not, and it has not, and it will not ever grow like a Silicon Valley startup. You know, hype, PR, marketing and branding. Rapid growth, quick returns, and then an eventual embarrassing collapse. It's much more like giving birth. And I have no personal experience, but I've heard that hurts. But on the other side of labour, there is life. 
And this is how the kingdom grows, through turmoil and then triumph. Suffering first and then success. It's always the pattern of death and resurrection. We walk the road of the cross in order to wear the crown. And so this must also be the pattern for us. Do you ever hear people say something like, Christians are experiencing unprecedented oppression in the 21st century? Can I just say, that is absolute rubbish. (laughs) What we experience as Christians in the world is highly precedented. Christians have experienced what we are experiencing in every age of the church. Our experience in the 21st century is not greatly different to the 1st century. You know, Christians today might be labelled as foolish. How can you believe this stuff? Sometimes Christians are labelled as dangerous, a threat to the fabric of society. And amidst that pressure, we see Christian leaders capitalising on the chaos with all manner of conspiracies and controversies, which are just a distraction from Christ. Many water down the message of Jesus to make it more palatable to modern ears. I'm sure that all of us have some sad experiences of friends or family that have just fallen away from the faith. Or others who are just complacent and idle. The kingdom just doesn't seem to concern them anymore the way it once did. And so how do we respond when it feels like the world is breaking apart? How do we keep following Jesus when everything's falling to pieces? How do we keep serving our master when the world seems such a mess? Well, we follow the pattern of Jesus. And so as we read our newspapers and watch our TVs or scroll our social media feeds, we need to recall that for Jesus, this turmoil is not a sign of the end. He says that over and over again. This is not the end. These are the beginning of birth pains and they are the sign that God is starting something new. And so here's the challenge and encouragement, I think, from God's word to us today. What if the very conditions which we can interpret as barriers to the gospel are in reality the first signs of new life and blessing? What if those things which cause us to shrink back, to hold our tongue, to hide away our faith, are the very things which should motivate us to go out and to speak up boldly and to shine the light of the gospel wherever we go? What if all the mess in the world is actually a sign that God is moving, that he's shaking things up? What if the twigs are tender and the leaves are coming out and the time is ripe for revival? If we believe that, then we won't be alarmed. We won't think, wow, Jesus must be very surprised that people aren't very interested in listening to him. What's he going to do? We're not going to be idle. His kingdom is coming. We won't buy into the panic of the world, but we won't be passive either. We won't give in to lawlessness, just doing whatever we want, but we won't let our love run cold. We won't slack off, but we'll serve Jesus our master in everything we do and say. We won't go into self-protection mode. We'll go into proclamation mode. We'll speak to everyone in our world about this Jesus who has died for us who lives and who reigns in heaven and will do that whatever the cost. 
And we won't just carry on doing what we've always done, but we'll keenly await the coming of Jesus. We will watch and we will wait and we will see how he will work in our world again today. Now, that won't always be easy and it won't always be clear to us what God is doing. And the service that we give to Jesus won't always bear immediate and obvious fruit. But this passage teaches us that when Jesus speaks, it happens. That his words are sure and true. If you are a Christian here tonight, the words of Jesus are a firm foundation. And if you build your life on him, your life will withstand any storm that this world throws at you. And if you're not a Christian here tonight, the same is true for you. The words of Jesus can be trusted You really can build your life on him and he will never let you down. See, the point of this passage is not to endow us with some secret knowledge of coming events. Instead, it should equip us to endure coming events, whatever they are. The point is not to make us good diviners of the future, but good disciples who keep following Jesus, whatever the future brings. The point is not to turn us into apocalyptic seers, but to make us spiritual, long-distant runners who just keep following Jesus, who keep trusting him. In the end, the point of this passage is to make us more like Jesus, our King, the Jesus who birthed a new world through the labour of his cross. And so, in the words of Hebrews 12, Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Amen.